Swedenborg's revelation had a purpose, to usher in the dawn of a new spiritual era, or as he puts it in his work, True Christianity, to present the teachings of the new church on the Lord's behalf through the agency of the word. And why? So that the second coming could take place. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. This week, Curtis and I learned power-packed heavenly truths from the angels in our spirit story. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose shares three gems of wisdom about the power of the divine human, the truth we need, and our inborn capacity to have communication with heaven. Then we travel to 1770, when the second coming began this week in history. Hey, Curtis. Hello, Chelsea. How's it going? Oh, good. I, well, I'm, you know, edge of my seat. We're going we're gonna to progress in our story here. We are, and we're moving on to Act 3 of our spirit story, and we're continuing our journey of learning from this or with this group of spirits who themselves are getting to learn directly from angels about heavenly truths. And so the angels that came to them after they had prayed for help and clarity— these angels showed up, they answered their initial question, which was like, how to know what's true? And, but then they offered to go a step further and say, here, let's just tell you, we'll just tell you some core teachings. And so last time in act two, we got this great digest of the steps of repentance, which was just so succinct and helpful. And then the sort of added bonus of like, why we have immortal souls. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> Act now and we'll throw in. Yeah. And angels are like, you know, we have our community care team. I just feel like angels are the best moderators. Like, oh, you want to know why the soul is immortal? Here you go in three sentences, you know. So, that's right. That's... What great customer service. Yeah, it really is. And, and then that wasn't even it. The angels are only just getting started. And so here we are in... Act three. You ready? Ready. On the subject of regeneration, they, the angels, said, Who cannot see that everyone, at least everyone who has been taught that God exists, possesses the freedom either to think about God or not to think about God? All people, then, have just as much freedom in spiritual matters as they do in civic and earthly matters. The Lord constantly grants this freedom to everyone. Therefore, we are at fault if we do not think about God. Our ability to have such thoughts is what makes us human. The inability of animals to have such thoughts is what makes them animals. Therefore, we have the ability to reform and regenerate ourselves as if we are doing so on our own, provided that at heart we admit that the Lord is the one doing the work. So the spiritual freedom that they were talking about, that's very remarkable that they were saying that one condition is that we have the freedom to think about God or not think about God. And you often get the question from people when we're sitting back and wondering why life is like it is, why isn't God more obvious? Why doesn't God tell us, look, I'm here when that sort things out, but it sounds like that in a very technical sense would destroy our freedom to 
think or not think about God. That here we have it where you can kind of feel God, you can hear truths that make sense. Sometimes people have direct sort of experiences, but it creates this very much agnostic experience where you can hunt in either direction. Yes, <laughs> totally. So going on here now, it says, everyone who practices repentance and believes in the Lord is reformed and regenerated. And I just think that is such a quotable quote, you know, that that's, you know, just to know that and to be able to like return to that idea that, okay, everyone who practices repentance and believes in the Lord is reformed and regenerated. That's all you have to do. You know, there you go. Yes. Wow. And earlier in this story, didn't we get a definition of repentance that was once or twice a year, examine yeah. yourself? <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty, it's pretty straightforward and like, okay, we can do this. And so they go on. We have to do both of these things as if we are acting on our own, even though the ability to act seemingly on our own comes from the Lord. Now, it is true that left to ourselves, we would be able to contribute nothing to our regeneration. Absolutely nothing. Nevertheless, you were not created as statues. You were created as human beings so that you would be able to do this with the help of the Lord, but as if you were acting on your own. Developing love and faith as our response is the sole thing that the Lord truly wants us to do for him. So there's that's another fabulous little digest of like, what does the Lord want? Develop love and faith. It's kind of like th that famous book, The Art of War by yes. Sun Tzu, which is, I'm just going to boil this huge complex thing into pithy sayings that hold all the wisdom about it within it. I feel like that's what we're getting hit with here is yes. these E equals MC squared lines about what life is all about. Uh, that's It seems like that's angel talk. You know, they just have this yeah. at the ready. They can just like, here you go. Even they sum this up. It says to sum this up, do these things on your own, but believe that you do them with the help of the Lord then you will be doing them as if you were acting on your own. It deftly removes hierarchy from human existence mm -hmm. because the thing that really matters, which is that, that determines your afterlife is how re regenerated you are. And it's saying nobody's any better at this than anyone else. Yes, right. <laughs> Everybody's really bad at it, which is cool. <laughs> but also like, what's it doing? Why would you need to, and this is just something that was coming to me as I was hearing you explain that. Why would you need to do this where you're where you're acting as if of self you're going through this process that we get when we feel like we're doing something but mm -hmm. then we acknowledge that it's the lord but it's kind of removing the last bastion of pride because mm -hmm. this is something that's so close to you your experience of oh yeah i felt like this was me and to be able to say i'm willing to not uh c you know cling for dear life to that I'm, I'm i'd yeah. be happy to give that up for a, for a greater good that's probably just a really important step to you know being totally free of the ego-based uh i love being better than other people and really gets you to this i just love what's good for myself and others and yeah yeah and then the lord gets to like just bring it all to another level because when we are willing to live in alignment with that then then the Lord can really start doing some good work with us and give you, give you, give you your ego's dream. Yes, by the way, right. <laughs> and because that's what God wants to give you. That's what God has, but but He can't until it's safe, and it's not safe until right. He knows that's not going to ruin us. To have it will go to our head otherwise. Yep, that's great. 
So here's what the group said in response. They said, the group then asked, is this actually, so here they are. They're having a question about this. They're saying, the group then asked, is this doing things as if one is acting on one's own an attribute that human beings have had from creation? It is not that kind of attribute, the angels replied, meaning it's not something that we've had from creation. So this is really weird. So because acting on one's own is actually something that belongs to God alone. It is, however, granted to us continually. That is, it is always with us. If we do what is good and believe what is true, as if we were doing so on our own, we are angels of heaven. And I just want to pause there because it just sounds like with the, you know, it's not an attribute that human beings have had from creation is meaning like we don't have it in and of ourselves. Uh, It's something that the Lord is just giving to us. And so, like they said, if we do what is good and believe what is true, we're angels of heaven. If we do what is evil and therefore believe what is false, however, which is actually something that is also done as if we were acting on our own, we are spirits of hell. You are surprised to hear that this too is done as if we were acting on our own. But you see this, don't you, when you say that familiar prayer to be kept safe so that the devil does not seduce you and take possession of you the way he took possession of Judas, fill you with all wickedness and destroy both your soul and your body. So I think they're referencing there the Lord's Prayer. And they go on, all who believe that they are acting on their own, regardless of whether the thing they are doing is good or evil, become at fault for what they do. Those who believe they are acting as if they were on their own do not become at fault. If we believe that some good deed comes from ourselves, we claim for ourselves something that actually belongs to God. If we believe that some evil deed comes from ourselves, we attribute to ourselves something that actually belongs to the devil. So, quite a mouthful, but there you have it. That's another amazing essential point, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's great that they go into that detail for us. What do you, do you think when they say not from creation? It makes me think of electricity in a house. That mm-hmm. it's not really in the house, but it's just constantly there. You yes, could, yeah. Like the Lord is—is is, is that how you read it too? Yes, I think so. Exactly. Like right. If you turn off the electricity, the house doesn't just can't just keep turning its lights on or whatever. Yeah, even though it has like a light bulb and wiring and everything. That's a great yeah. analogy. Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, that's that's cool, and it's cool that that's those spirits are thinking like we're thinking. Wait, wait, wait. Stop on that again, as of self. Yes. But I guess it makes sense. Um, well, I I like the feel of what he's saying that to do something really on your own is divine. That is, I know uh, this m- giant mystery that God has within the divine self. Yes. And we take it for granted because it's so given out so freely, the ability to be an image of it. But it's just like we as people carry around God's image, right? We look like God in our own way, but that that's because we are, it, we're just reflecting the divine there. So our ability to seem like we're doing something on our own is also a reflection of, uh, to, to me, it just, it seems a little more organic to have it set in this context where it's like other things. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, we're always we're always plugged in. So we can't ever have that, you know, network or whatever go dark, you know, or shut down or something. So we're always given that continually, that sense of 
oh yeah, this is just who we are, you know. But then it just is like you can sit with that idea and you could just like meditate forever on that uh, fact that the Lord is the only one who can actually do anything. <laughs> it's just like, well, it's amazing. great. It's great too because this lines things up for the reason why God is the only one who gets credit for anything. Because yes, if you're yeah. in a group and you're the one who did the actual work, you get credit for it. And in the end, God is doing the only one who actually does anything, which you know, to your to your uh, 17 year old self or 16 year old self is, oh, no, that's that's what makes me me is my ability to to do all this stuff. But it's actually very relaxing because it's like the feeling of a group that is just admiring something together and in loyalty to it, like people who love a certain movie or love nature, that creates a, it's really easy to get along with people when there's not this silent competition of like, who who really did the best stuff? There is just so much in this that uh, I took a little bit of time to write down just what I thought were these four essentials. Here's what I've got. One, Great. practice repentance. Two, believe in God. Three, develop love and faith as if of ourselves. Four, Acknowledge that all good comes from God and all evil from hell. Sort of like those those are our marching orders. We can do yeah. that. Yep. Okay. There's a, it's a, it's a life, life execution plan. I like yeah. it. <laughs> that's great. So next time, that's, that's our act three for now. And next time we finish this spirit story. And first we'll get to hear from the angels about baptism. And then we'll see how it all ends for these spirits who have just gotten, you know, their minds blown with all of this concise, heavenly truth. Can't wait. Hey, Jonathan. Hi there. Welcome. Come on in. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Here we are. I've got my spotlight (laughs) with me to shine on you. (laughs) It's a little (laughs) bit bright. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) It's not hot, though. It's it's not bad. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, LEDs these days. So thanks for having us. And what news this week from the ongoing translation work of the NCE? I have no idea. Again, I come completely fresh. I'm glad you do. And you'll see there's a bit of a mess on my desk here, but um, (laughs) I've been working for quite some time on the volume called Secrets of Heaven, Volume 3. It's our hope that this will be out by the end of this year of 2021. And uh, and some of the work is kind of starting to wrap up. So I've been going back and forth across the volume and finding uh, more gems. It just keeps happening. It's so fun. Mm, so I've got great. three of them for you today. Great. The first one is the longest one. And to set this up a little bit, uh, this is from Secrets of Heaven 2017, subsection two. And, you know, at times in my life, I've pictured uh, that goodness just kind of radiates from God and and we can all tap into that. But Swedenborg explains in this passage that there's more to the mechanism than that kind of simple picture. So I found this um, striking uh, because it kind of explains the whole, the most profound mystery has to be about the relationship of the human and the divine in God, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Jesus, like what was going on there. So he says this, and it's all dealing with a biblical verse. Okay. The present verse addresses the need for the Lord's human nature to become one with his divine nature. 
the only route by which we receive goodness and truth, the only route Mm -hmm. is from his divine nature through his human nature. Mm. But this is a divine secret, which few people believe because they do not understand it. Hmm. I don't know. Phrases like that always get my juices going. But Totally right. <laughs> it's natural. <laughs> yeah. They suppose that divine goodness can reach us even without any union between the Lord's humanity and divinity. But this is impossible. To be specific, now why would that be impossible? Mm-hmm. To be specific, humankind alienated itself from the highest level of divinity by immersing itself in corrupt desires, okay, that's number one, by immersing itself in corrupt desires and blinding itself with false ideas. Oh, good Mm. going, everybody. We (laughs) removed ourselves to such a distance that no divine inflow could ever have reached the rational level of, of our minds. So we move farther away from God hasn't moved, but we move yeah. farther and farther away. And nothing could ever have reached us, he continues, except through the humanity that the Lord made one with the divinity in himself. The Lord's humanity provided a point of contact. Through it, God in the highest could come to us, as the Lord explicitly says in many places, that he is the way and that there is no access to the Father except through him. So I love that idea of this. This I've, I've thought often about the need for that safe access, because if the divine as it is in itself had come down, you know, we would all be toast. Uh, but this added an interesting point that that could not have penetrated our minds without going through this human filter. I just, I just love it yeah. when we get a little glimpse behind the scenes like that. This is another one, uh, Secrets of Heaven 2674, I love it when these little biblical details, which I can't imagine what they mean, uh, but you just hear it and it sounds plausible, like, yeah, that makes sense. And then you get the explanation. Uh, This one's a little shorter. But in this biblical story, um, Hagar is just this little tiny detail. Hagar, who was um, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, couldn't have children. And so his wife actually gave her handmaid or whatever you call them, you know, her servant to Abraham so he could, you know, continue his lineage. And, uh, and so, but at some point there was a disagreement between Hagar and Sarah and Hagar was sent out of the house. And, but Abraham gave her a flask of water and he puts it on her shoulder. Now that's a very Mm -hmm. logical thing to do. You need some water. You're going out in the wilderness and to put it on your shoulder, you know, the kind of detail you, you'd think nothing about. Mm-hmm. But here's what Swedenborg says about that. The text speaks of a flask of water because the amount of truth we are given is very small to start with. <laughs> Specifically, we are given as much as we can handle at that point, which is what putting it on her shoulder symbolizes. And then he adds this rather um, point that he goes into more in the chapter. Eventually, their water runs out, and they then receive help from the Lord. Oh, wow. So I, I feel such mercy in that, that um, 
you're given as much as you can handle. You know, sometimes it's frustrating. Like, I don't have more. You're headed out in the wilderness, and you've got one little flask of water. Yes. How is this going to work out? <laughs> and yet the fact is that that's as much as we can take at that point, and at some point that'll run out, and then we'll be in the market for more, mm. and we'll be open to more, and we'll be given more. I don't know, that little detail of on the shoulder, I just think that's awesome. I love that. And one of my favorite things to get to the third one is uh, I love passages, and as far as I can see, there are not many of them, that say that all human beings are created to be able to live in both worlds at once. In other words, in a sense, although Swedenborg doesn't spell this out, what happened to him... uh, we're all made to have it's not that that he had some spiritual faculty that the rest of us don't have or something that everybody's created to be in touch with heaven but there's various reasons why that's not working so well for a lot of us right now uh, but we do we're born with the equipment and um and I found a new one the other day to add to the collection this is oh, secrets that's of awesome. heaven yeah 2682 subsection 3 and it adds a little detail that I hadn't heard before. Swedenborg often says that while we're alive in this world, our spirit is in the world of spirits. But listen to what he says here. Okay. While we are in our body, our spirit is alive in heaven. I never heard that before. Mm-hmm. Our spirit is alive in heaven and our body is alive in the world. We are born into both What is more, we are created in such a way that we can actually be with angels as to our spirit at the same time that we are with other people by means of our body and everything that belongs to it. So it's both kind of heartbreaking because I wish there was more closeness of heaven and earth. And that's what we're striving for. That, in a way, is sort of the whole purpose of Off the Left Eye and everything. Yeah. But, um, but it's also so awesome that the divine love just created us from the beginning. We've already got that citizenship. We've already got our passport. <laughs> yes. You know, we have dual citizenship <laughs> from birth. We're just created with all the, you know, spiritual equipment or faculties or whatever you want to call it to be able to have that connection. And there are reasons for our protection that that a lot of us don't have that experience. Um, uh, right. But it's not that we are in some way damaged or that there are a few special people. You know, uh, that's a birthright that we all have. Yes. Wow. Well, these three were amazing and mind-blowing. And, and here I've brought this little spotlight, but clearly... You don't even have lights in your office because the light shining out of these books is, is all you need. <laughs> That's why I have these dark glasses on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I was always wondering about that. So, all right. Well, Jonathan, will you join me now and we'll go catch up with Curtis to see where Swedenborg was this week in history? Oh, I'd be delighted. All right. Here we go. All right, Curtis and Jonathan, here we are. Hello. Hey. And this week in history marks the far end of the giant arc of Swedenborg's journey as a revelator. Mm. So, yeah, in this podcast, you know, week to week, we touch in at 
different points along this giant arc. And, you know, we've explored the earliest days of his spiritual awakening and sort of everything in between. And now we are traveling to the other extreme, the climax, so to speak, before the the denouement of his life. And that's where we're dipping in this week in history. So in sort of preface, there are two major spiritual world events which Swedenborg witnessed. And one gets a lot of coverage by Swedenborg himself in his published works. And the other one is no more than a single paragraph number. And it's that paragraph number that we're going to focus on today. So these two major spiritual world events are connected to each other. And the first one is the Last Judgment. And we haven't covered the Last Judgment much in this podcast because it's really not tied to a single date. It's kind of really hard to find week-by-week datables of the Last Judgment because uh, Swedenborg writes how it occurred throughout the whole year of 1757. And even there's some, you know, uh, blending in with the end of 1756 uh, in terms of different things that he writes about the events that are happening along with the Last Judgment. And and so he, I thought I might just read a little bit to give you some context, you know, the, the shortest of brief primers on The Last Judgment in case this is total news to anybody like, what do you mean The Last Judgment happened in 1757? Um, and like I said, Swedenborg has a whole work uh, called The Last Judgment. And in that book, number 45 gives a really nice little summary. And he starts by saying, The Last Judgment has taken place. That's the subject heading. And he says in its, in its own chapter above, I've explained that a last judgment takes place not in the physical world, but in the spiritual world, where everyone who has lived since the beginning of creation is together. Because this is the case, no one in the physical world can tell when a last judgment has happened. Everyone expects it to happen here, believing it will change everything in the heavens we see above us, everything on this earth, and the whole of humankind. So then he goes on, to prevent the people in the church who believe this from continuing to live in ignorance, to prevent people who think about the last judgment from having to wait for it forever, which will lead in time to an erosion of their trust in the things said and the literal meaning of the word about it, and therefore to prevent many from losing their faith in the word, I have been allowed to see with my own eyes that the last judgment has already taken place. The evil has been cast into various hells, the good have been raised into heaven, and in this way, everything has been brought back into proper order, restoring the spiritual equilibrium between good and evil and between heaven and hell. He says, I've been allowed to see from beginning to end how the last judgment took place, as well as how Babylon was destroyed, how the people meant by the dragon were cast into the abyss, and how a new heaven was formed and a new church established in the heavens, the church meant by the new Jerusalem. I have been allowed to see all these things with my own eyes so that I could bear witness to them. The Last Judgment began early last year in 1757 and was carried to completion by the end of that year. So there's our little quick primer on spiritual world event A that Swedenborg witnessed. <laughs> you know, huge, huge seismic shift of the spiritual world. And so the spiritual world event B is the last number 
in the last chapter of True Christianity before some supplemental material that he has there. And this chapter is called The Close of the Age, The Coming of the Lord, and the New Heaven and the New Church. And so here is number 791, which you will hear contains this week in history. So he writes, Postscript. After this work was finished, the Lord called together the twelve disciples who followed him in the world. The next day, he sent all of them out to the entire spiritual world to preach the gospel that the Lord God Jesus Christ reigns and that his kingdom will last for ages of ages, as foretold by Daniel and by the book of Revelation. Also that people who come to the wedding feast of the Lamb are blessed. This occurred on June 19, 1770. This is what the Lord was referring to when he said he will send out his angels and they will gather his chosen people from one end of the heavens to the other. So, woo! There's a couple things to note. And first, Jonathan, I wonder if you might speak to what he means by this work, because he's saying after this work was finished, meaning true Christianity, but true Christianity, the book wasn't published until a year later in 1771. Uh, so how, what does that mean? Uh, my best understanding, and I know different people have had different interpretations. Some people have thought all the work, you know, of, of everything that he published. But, but uh, I actually think it was um, the second draft. He, you can't believe it, but paper was so expensive back then that he would write a first draft and then copy it for the printer and you're done. It's incredible to me. Right, right. Uh, but in this case, there was a lot of changes, including the title, which we've talked about in another podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, so after this work was completed, I think must mean that second draft. And then he did a third draft that took him the better part of a year and, and seeing it through the press. Right. And so it's very interesting that the completion of the second draft of the work was enough to release this, you know, message yes. in the spiritual world. You know, it didn't wait for the thing to come out, the volume yes. to come out in the in the press. Uh, just the completion of that draft was enough. Oh, it's so interesting. And the timing of it is also, you know, just a few weeks ago, we did a whole episode or one of these um, segments on the Gothenburg trial where Swedenborg's works were tried for heresy. And this moment comes just weeks after that. So he's, you know, so this second draft of true Christianity that he's been working on is his redrafting of the first draft, at least as far as I understand it, is partially in response to the sort of growing fizzing that's happening in Sweden, um, in Gothenburg specifically, around his work. And I believe that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's like, all right, this is it. Uh, he's redrafting the work. He's, it's in response to this, or not totally in response to the, you know, in partial response to the um, uproar going on in Gothenburg about his work. And then it seems to lead to this, like, moment in the spiritual world. And so the reason why I think, or why I think I have reason to think that the these two spiritual world events are connected to each other is um, 
there's this number in True Christianity and earlier in the work, uh, number 115, when he's talking about redemption and he ties the last judgment and this moment together. So he says, redemption was actually a matter of gaining control of the hells, restructuring the heavens, and by so doing, preparing for a new spiritual church. I can say with absolute certainty that these three actions are redemption because the Lord is bringing about redemption again today. This new redemption began in the year 1757, along with the last judgment that happened at that time. The redemption has continued from then until now. The reason is that today is the second coming of the Lord. A new church is being instituted that could not have been instituted unless first the hells were brought under control and the heavens were restructured. So kind of another way to look at this arc that I described is this whole big work of redemption that's been happening since 1757. And then this this week in history, June 19th in 1770, is the culmination of that. Wow. And um, sounds like Judas got his job back. <laughs> yes. They sent out the 12, the same disciples. To go, and there's got to be more to that because <laughs> yes. they're proclaiming something that you, you already knew. The Lord reigns, and it says that in the Bible somewhere. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about what that that event actually was and the significance of it. But sounds positive. Yeah, I know. It's also something that has struck me that, um, and I think you're right. Even though after Judas hung himself, uh, and in the early in Acts, I believe it is that they choose a replacement uh, for him. It sounds like it was the original twelve. Yeah. which is really intriguing. I wish he said a little more about that. And uh, it seems to me that in the published theological works, he's been at pains over and over again to kind of dial down, like a lot of people think, oh, that they're going to see St. Peter when they die or, or that kind of thing. And he's know, been yeah. trying to say, oh, no, the, 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 the disciples were quite ordinary type of people. That Those expressions... You know that they would sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, that has a correspondence. It means about every different type of goodness and truth, and and mm. so kind of dialing down the the twelve disciples, like oh, no, as no, persons, just has a meaning, yeah. just has a meaning, just has a meaning. So what would ever make you think when you get to the end of the whole story, you're going to turn <laughs> the page and it's going to say, oh, by the way, those are the guys who got sent out. <laughs> That's the uh, A-team for this new um, kind of message radiating out. One thing I that know. struck me about it was that the uh, those 12 apostles or disciples are, uh, I mean, they were, they were people who grew up in Judaism, so they'd be able to talk to people who came from that background. They knew the Hebrew scriptures and... And they're also mentioned in uh, the Quran. Uh, so mm-hmm. Muslims would be able to have an interesting conversation. You know, if, you know, Peter knocked on your door, you'd be interested in having a conversation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now they're saying they're working with, with Swedenborg on this new church project. It's, it's an astounding, <laughs> yes. astounding uh, thing to say at the end of these books. That is amazing. And so something that... Uh, Oh, there's, yeah, there's so many different interesting thoughts about it. But one is that it's just interesting to note that the 
The Last Judgment occurs after Swedenborg finished publishing the last volume of his first theological work, Secrets of Heaven. So that's where it lands as he's done publishing Secrets of Heaven in 1756. And then boom, the next year, all of that next year is the the last judgment happening. And, and now this moment is happening right before he publishes his last theological work, True Christianity. So he's finished this draft and now it's a matter of, you know, some more revising and then printing. Swedenborg publishing his books was not just a coincidence with these spiritual events happening. Like he is very explicit that this, his books were integral to being able to facilitate and bear witness to these spiritual events and everything, you know, so that to support the, the, um, you know, to be part of a catalyst for the Lord's second coming, I guess is one way to put it. Yeah, not just a witness role, but also sort of a two-world rollout. You think if his work is like this tipping point that's allowing for the 12 disciples to get sent out in the spiritual world, you know, it's kind of like an it is finished moment that comes on the heels of an intense trial. Uh, Like, doesn't it deserve more than a paragraph? You know, (laughs) And and I think it doesn't because it's just the beginning, you know, like, he couldn't cover the whole of the second coming in his books like he did with The Last Judgment because he's just seeing the brink of it, you know, and, and we're still living into the reality of it today. So it's sort of this this new dawn, this amazing height of summer on June 19th, 1770. Yeah. And it's like, whoosh. All right. It's out of his hands. It's It's on the move. All right. Well, thank you, Curtis and Jonathan, so much. Fun to dig in to that with you this week. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having us. My mind is blown. All right. (laughs) I am Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye. We close out each episode of the podcast with a Swedenborg-inspired song. If you have a Swedenborg-inspired song you'd like us to share, email us at offthelefteye at gmail.com. You can submit your song that way, and if you give us permission, we would love to showcase your Swedenborg-inspired music. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. You're the best audience a podcast could ever have, so thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast to never miss when a new episode comes out, and consider supporting our work with a donation. Go to otle.com slash donate. Anything you give helps make the quality and impact of the work we do possible. So this week for our Swedenborg-inspired song, we are sharing Lightning in the Mountain. This is another song by Heather Childs. We shared one a couple episodes back by her. And in this song, I just it came to mind because it seems to resonate perfectly with the subject matter of the second coming that we've been discussing. In this song, I feel like that's what she's singing about is this hint and new like glimmer of the dawn happening on the horizon. And you can even hear in one of the lyrics, she mentions something that is first heard and then something that is seen. And that is an echo of Swedenborg's uh, title page for Heaven and Hell that uh, these, this work comes from things heard and seen. So this is a beautiful song and it gets me so energized. 
So I look forward to being with you next time. But until then, here's Lightning in the Mountain by Heather Childs. Enjoy the music. There's lightning in the mountain. There is thunder in the hills. There is a song that's pouring down my soul and it will not be still. I have taken all the time I could to find my way to here. I have lingered in the valleys much too long. I have looked into the east but still the sun would not appear. But there is a flash of something going on Oh, there is lightning in the mountain There is thunder in the hills There is a song that's pouring down my soul And it will not be still I have wandered all around this world And everywhere I've been The beauty and the sorrow I have seen so many hungry eyes that held their silent pain but it looks like there's a cry that's going to rain oh there is lightning in the mountain there is thunder in the hills there's a song that's pouring down my soul and it will not be still and now we can be It can be seen The beauty of the words And the magic of the dream Oh, there is lightning in